3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 21st of November 2023. My name is Ivka and this morning I'm joined in the studio with Fung, Francis and Carnegie. How are we all? Good morning. 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 We're well. I'm um, I'm just reeling from the um, Cricket World Cup men's um, loss. India lost the final. On Sunday night, so um, I'm still recovering from that. How is everyone else? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Do you want to tell us more about this match, Carnegie? Um, Yeah, I mean, I was so convinced India would win. Uh, They played, like, so phenomenally all through. And then just absolutely, um, just, I don't know what happened in the final. It was so bad. It was like a searing loss. Um, but there was a uh, cool part of the match, which no TV channel broadcast, of course, but um, the match happened in Ahmedabad in Gujarat, where uh, the Indian Prime Minister is from. There was a lot of um, high-profile people in the audience, like Bollywood celebrities and politicians and the Prime Minister himself and... Um, a, an Australian protester ran out onto the field wearing a Free Palestine T-shirt and ran up to our kind of star batsman um, and gave him a big hug and um, protesting is banned in that city and he was immediately arrested and um, I just thought that was so cool. It was on all of our um, socials after, which is, which is how everyone saw it because, yeah, even in India nobody aired it. Um, but yeah, I was I was very happy with that. They interviewed him after as they were leading him away in handcuffs and he was so nonchalant and it was such an such an Australian energy. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. So I was happy to see that. You haven't it's really difficult to protest in India. Um, so any form of it that you can see is really great. Awesome. Amazing. Um so we have a show this morning do we want to run through what is coming up sure so we're starting by revisiting a conversation that i had with charlie who is one of the organizers of slut walk nam melbourne we're replaying this interview that originally aired on the 31st of october because this saturday the 25th of november will be the slut walk protest in nam so we're just going to replay that um that interview for you Coming up afterwards at 7.30, we will play the second instalment of my interview with Yasmin Abdel-Majid, who is a Sudanese-born author, broadcaster and social advocate. Uh, This is a continuation of the conversation that was started last week about the ongoing war and crisis in Sudan. 
And then at 7.45, we're joined by Katrina Rank, who is the founder of Fine Lines Dance Co. Fine Lines is an intergenerational company of dancers uh, who challenge stereotypes uh, and are presenting new work. So they have a new show this Saturday, the 25th of November at Dance House. Following that at 8am, in honour of uh, 100 years of radio this week, we'll be speaking with Deb Welch, who is a community radio stalwart who started her journey, radio journey here at 3CR in the 1980s. So excited to talk to Deb about what that was like. And at 8.15, as our final interview, we will be speaking with Asil Taya, who is a Palestinian artist living in Nam. Asil has been doing some incredible work uh, off late in light of what's happening in Palestine. So really keen to talk to her about um, what she's been doing and what's coming up in the next week or so. So like I said, pretty jam-packed show this morning, but we will be right back after this with the news headlines. Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2023. Okay, so this week's news headlines. Uh, unfortunately, we've had a terrible this week, week this week in Australia on refugee policies, immigration detention and incarceration. So last week we brought you news of the release of 80 people from immigration detention, uh, which has since become 93. This was based on a high court ruling that indefinite immigration detention was unlawful. But what we've seen is a quick and deeply concerning turnaround uh, last Thursday when the Australian Parliament passed legislation to subject those people released to a range of monitoring measures, curfews, ankle bracelets, and the introduction of criminal sanctions for people who broke the conditions of the bridging visas under which they were released. This move followed a lot of fear-mongering in the media and from Peter Dutton and the opposition And the labelling of these people as hardened criminals, animals, all sorts of uh, terrible names from which um, Australian society uh, apparently needed protection. And Albanese was quoted saying, we are doing all that we need to do, everything within our power to keep people safe. Uh, But this perspective from the government only grants Australian citizens worthy of our care and risks further human rights abuses of non-citizens. While it's difficult to find complete information on those released, the reason they were detained was because they do not have a valid visa and not because they were serving time. Uh, And it's clear that almost all, if not all, of those um, convicted of crimes have already served their sentence. There were also people who were detained because they were stateless and the government simply had nowhere further to deport them to. So this move from the government uh, normalises immigration detention as punishment uh, and human rights uh, lawyer Sanmati Verma writes in The Age on November 17, debates in the media and parliament since have laid bare a chilling fact. Our government, the opposition and willing elements of the media would have us believe that just because they are migrants and refugees, the 84 people released fall into a special category. 
that even though they have served their time, they should be subject to forms of restriction, segregation and punishment for the rest of their lives. It is clear now that over the past 20 years we've been led to believe and come to accept that immigration detention is an extension of prison, that migrants and refugees are inherently a risk to our safety and tacitly that they deserve to be locked up forever. Um, This morning The Age is reporting that the federal government has sought legal advice on the prospect of using preventative detention-style laws to re-detain non-citizens who had previously served jail time for offences such as rape and murder, according to two sources speaking anonymously. And this again risks further human rights abuses of non-Australian citizens. Meanwhile, in Papua New Guinea, we're also seeing the failure of the Australian government to treat refugees humanely and to resettle people who have been detained uh, for some or stranded uh, on uh, Papua New Guinea for some 10 years. Since the Manus Island detention was shut down in 2016, as it was deemed illegal by the PNG government, many men have been living in terrible conditions in Port Moresby and relying on service providers and Australian government funding for food, housing and support. Australia has since stopped funding these services, uh, even though according to PNG they agreed to continue until the last refugee left. Uh, What we're hearing now is that uh, some 60 to 70 uh, men have been living without electricity and with uh, barely having enough food for more than two weeks. Um, In a letter to PNG's Chief Migration Officer, Stanis Hulahau, on Thursday, seven service providers in PNG have alleged they have not been paid since November 2022. Uh, and these businesses have said that uh, they will cut all services to refugees and asylum seekers from this Thursday, 23rd of November. The service providers have sent uh, a letter to PNG Immigration threatening the PNG refugees with eviction. They write, all access to services provided by us will cease from this date. Uh, it will include the occupation accommodation that they currently occupy, or transport services, payments of allowance. Uh, They regret the necessity of such action, um, but have not uh, been paid. Refugee Action Coalition Group has called this uh, the final straw and called on Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill to act to provide the funds needed to support Australia's refugees. Uh, And this is part of uh, Australia's Australia not taking responsibility for refugees and part of the externalisation processes of Australian refugee detention. Uh, the Refugee Action Coalition says that the PNG farce has gone on too long uh, and call on the government to uh, take responsibility for those who are um, living in fear and living in terrible conditions. Uh, In South Australia, we've also seen um, major parties block a Greens move to keep kids out of adult prisons. The Labor and Liberal parties have joined forces to block a Greens motion in the Upper House to disallow regulations that enable children to be detained in adult facilities. Uh, Current regulations continue the practice of permitting children as young as 10 years of age who are taken into custody uh, in South Australia, further than 40 kilometres of Adelaide's uh, general post office, to be detained in a police prison or station, watch house or lock-up. 
Uh, and the Green Statement has um, reported on the 2022 report for the Commissioner for Children and Young People, which found that children were arrested or detained in South Australia police cells or watch houses at least 2,030 times in 2020 to 2021. And of those admissions, 43.8% were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander young people. Uh, A further report tabled in state parliament this month found that 39 young people under the age of 14 were detained at the Kalanatapa Youth Justice Centre in 2022 to 2023 and raised serious concerns about the use of restraints and self-harm threatening children's safety. Uh, Greens South Australia Justice spokesperson Robert Sims says no child should be detained in prison, police station or watch house. Jailing children in adult facilities can cause significant cognitive harm that affects their well-being into their adult life and puts them on a pathway that results in a continuous contact with the criminal justice system. It's vital that they are kept out of the carceral system. And the expiry of the old regulations, uh, according to Sims, presents an opportunity for the government to consider intervention and programs that divert children from the criminal justice system. Instead, major parties have decided to maintain the status quo. Mr Sims also has a bill before Parliament to raise the age of criminal responsibility in South Australia from 10 to 14. Um, Finally, as are the catastrophic uh, occupation of um, Palestine has escalated into genocide. We've seen at least 13,000 Palestinians who've been killed and 30,000 injured in Gaza since the conflict uh, started on October 7, according to Gaza's government media office on Sunday. Uh, And thousands of people have been taking to uh, Australian seats or hundreds of thousands of people um, when we look at uh, all the rallies Um, And for the sixth consecutive week, uh, people in Melbourne have been um, out there carrying signs and calling for um, ceasefire, calling for free Palestine and calling on um, Albanese to uh, admit that or call this uh, genocide. Um, The president of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, Nasser Mashni, said that we are seeing a change in uh, political reaction in the Australian public. Uh, And he says we'll be on the streets every week demanding freedom and self-determination for Palestine. This will be a vote changer. The popularity of these protests speaks to the community's feelings of injustice and abhorrence at the way our government is dragging its feet in calling for an immediate ceasefire. The frustration and desperation of the community is palpable. Speaking of actions for Palestine, if you live in the West, particularly in Maribyrnong, you can come along to uh, the Braybrook Community Hub on Churchill Avenue this evening at 6.30pm to support a motion similar to the one passed by Marybeck Council against Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. The motion is being put forward by Jorge Jorquera, Socialist Councillor for Maribyrnong. He has asked for all the support he can get from the local communities. So if you can, please come along um, 6.15, 6.30 tonight. It won't be long. Bring as many people as you can, any signs you can, and help urge Maribyrnong Council to stand against genocide. Those are our news headlines for today, the 21st of November 2023. We're going to jump straight into our first segment and we are revisiting a conversation that I had with Charlie from the Slut Walk NAM movement. 
So this Saturday, 25th of November, people will come together at the State Library to protest against victim blaming and slap shaming. So in light of this, like I said, we wanted to start today's show by replaying conversation I had with Charlie. And uh, this was originally aired on Tuesday Breakfast on 31st of October 2023. Listeners, please be advised that the following conversation mentions rape and sexual assault. Please take care when listening. I'm sure many of our listeners would be quite familiar with Slut Walk, but for those who have never heard of Slut Walk before, could you explain uh, the history behind the movement? Yeah, so um, Slut Walk actually originated in 2011 in Canada, of all places, um, when a police officer uh, shared the absolutely contemptible opinion that if women wanted to avoid getting raped, they should avoid dressing like sluts which prompted, of course, a rally in Toronto and then rallies all around the world, many of which are still going today, some of which have died off. But um, Melbourne Nam Slut Walk has been going since that 2011 first date and um, we're coming on 13 rallies now and still going strong. That's incredible. Since it's been 12 years, there have been 13 rallies. How has the movement um, and how have the rallies evolved from your perspective? Yeah, so um, Slut Walk, of course, at its foundation still holds a lot of the same values. We're here to end victim blaming, slut shaming and the overarching rape culture that really feeds and justifies those beliefs. But, of course, a lot has changed since 2011. I've only been a um, an organiser for two years, but I did go to rallies previously and, like, the culture has changed so much. We've had, of course, the Me Too movement, which is not necessarily perfect but definitely has brought to light some um, forms of sexual assault and really um, taught and brought into the light those sorts of issues. And so you do generally get, like, a bit more... Uh, acceptance I think of Slut Walk like my mum and her friends came to Slut Walk last year and they loved it which I think is something that maybe back in the day it wouldn't have been so acceptable maybe to some of these maybe slightly more conservative audiences of course we're still as radical as ever and that's another thing I think is really coming into Slut Walk as we have moved away maybe from one specific instance and focus more on culture generally we've been able to sort of address all the different ways that rape culture exists. So we make sure that we're addressing things like war, where rape is often weaponized. We're looking at Indigenous issues, and Indigenous people are, of course, overrepresented in domestic violence and um, sexual assault statistics. We're looking at all of these different problems and trying to make Slut Walk as inclusive as possible. Not that it wasn't to begin with, But as we're branching out, that's definitely something that we've tried to bring more and more into it. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, that really comes from bringing in as many communities as possible so that you have people from different backgrounds with different lived experiences being able to share what they know and what they've seen uh, with the wider community so that we can all, like you said, ensure that we're smashing the patriarchy in all its forms. Can you talk about the importance of this inclusion? Like you said, you know, um, it's great to hear that your mum and her (laughs) friends joined last year. I think that's something that, you know, often perhaps we don't really think about, especially older people um, joining in because, you know, this isn't a new 
concept or a new experience that people have had. This has been ongoing. So yeah, just from your perspective, the necessity of including different communities to the Slutwalk movement. Yeah, well, I think like at its foundation, of course, like sexual violence and rape culture is an intersectional issue. And it's an issue that's experienced differently and broadly by different groups and, of course, disproportionately by a number of groups like sex workers, disabled people, trans and queer people, women, um, Indigenous and people of colour. And so it's really important that we're not just saying, well, here's one experience of this, here's one way of even thinking about it after the fact, here's one way of preventing it. Like these are all things that need to be addressed through all of these different lived experiences and by learning from all of these different lived experiences because they are all so different. So it's really important both in a preventative sense to be looking at the communities and just the people that it affects the most and the harshest, but also in like a solidarity sense. We want to make the safest space possible and we want to be bringing people together and making them feel like they can speak up and they can like embrace what has like the community and maybe come out on the other side, not stronger, but like not poorly. So it's important that we have these safe spaces that are are accessible and are welcoming to all of the people and all of the various people who do experience these things. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of safe spaces, I know that um, you recently put on an event uh, where people could come together and do arts and crafts. Can you tell us a bit more about this this gathering? Yeah, so that was Slut Craft. We had that a few weeks ago. Um, it was kind of an extension of our um, banner making um, sessions, which we normally do run, and we probably will want run one of those as well later to and closer to the date of the actual Slut Walk. Yeah, we just feel like crafts is such a like a healing and connective force like you can use it to express so much you can use it to relax you can do a coloring sheet at the end of the day to just take your mind off something but just as equally it can be used to express so many other different emotions rage and sadness and community and yeah doing art together is such a communal experience that can really bring people together and show such solidarity So that's why we like to run these sort of hands-on, come in, come when you want, have some snacks, sit around and do art. And we had some really cool um, forms of art happening. We had, of course, poster painting, but we also had badge making, like collaging, colouring in. So really trying to cover the spectrum of also what is accessible. Like maybe you can't necessarily get down on the floor and paint, but you can come and cut cut some cool pieces of paper out and stick them down so yeah just really making a space where people can express themselves but also come together for listeners who want to do their part to smash the patriarchy and end this horrific culture what are some things that they can do Um, aside from you know attending Slutwalk themselves I know that there are even small everyday actions that people can take. So I was wondering if you had any suggestions for people. Yeah, for sure. Well, for one, yes, definitely please do attend. But, of course, we understand people are busy and maybe can't come out for whatever reason. But, yeah, there are so many things that you can do in your everyday life. Of course, like calling people out when you hear comments that do perpetuate the culture. And also I think 
thinking more deeply than, hey, is this explicitly like embracing this rape culture? Thinking about also the underlying meaning to jokes and stuff and being like, hey, why is that funny? Why do you why do you think this is funny? I think another thing that's really important is sort of looking in at your own bias. And like, that's not an attack. Everyone holds biases within themselves. It's literally human nature. But exploring your own bias and being like, okay, I had a reaction to that. Why did I have that reaction? And was that the reaction I want to have? And trying to cultivate just new patterns of thinking. No one's perfect. I definitely have my slip ups. But just really interrogating your own, your own interior life. I think also education and educating yourself is a great um, thing to do as well. There's so many books, but even if you don't have time for that, podcasts, um, TikTok accounts, not to brag, but Slutwalk has just launched their TikTok account. Um, uh, but yeah, no, just educating yourself, looking inside and yeah, using that knowledge to call out stuff when you see it happen. And of course, there's all of the the harder core stuff, which is like trying to be in public and um, like calling like out really explicit stuff and putting yourself on the line and things like that. What you said about really being super introspective and looking at your own biases and how how you think about certain things, how you respond to certain things is is just or if not more important. I think sometimes we think it's well, it is sometimes a lot easier to see um other people's behavior and call out call out their behavior but when it's our own behavior or our own way of thinking that's when it can be quite confronting and quite hard to to change but like you said I think that's that's where a lot of the growth and development comes from and I think it's also not just about calling out like biases that you necessarily have specifically related to things like gender and rape culture I think it is also understanding that all of these prejudices are interlinked having like biases along racial lines or lines of disability and stuff can justify and lead to the types of rape culture that we don't like to see same for being like transphobic or whorephobic and all of that stuff so like realizing it's not just about one particular bias and again acknowledging that that's not an attack everyone has biases but sort of working those through and yeah helping your friends and family work them through equally Finally, I know that every year at Slutwalk, people are encouraged to dress however they feel. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that because I know I've seen photos in the past and people look amazing. Uh, yeah, how can people prepare for, for Slutwalk? So, yeah, what we always say about Slutwalk is there is no dress code. So come wearing whatever makes you feel the most powerful and whatever feels best to you. So many people take that in the amazing direction of like fishnets and like amazing tops or nipple tape or whatever. But like equally, that can mean coming dressed in your tracky dacks, coming dressed in like a long skirt and long top. Like there are so many ways that you can take that. Um, it is really cool because um, this year, actually following our rally, I am aware that the Trans Day of Resistance will be holding a rally after ours. Um, which we'll be directing everyone to afterwards. You can also keep in mind uh, what might be appropriate for their event. So you can come in your clothes that will translate well into that next event, but equally bring a poncho, chuck it over your fishnets. That also totally works. And yeah, bring signs, 
whatever speaks to you. We have we'll have a banner making um probably a few days or like a week before as well as come earlier on the day we'll have some paints and stuff for sure. So you can always write something up. We our Instagram definitely has a bunch of slogans and stuff if you're looking for inspiration. And yeah, it's really about just coming out and using slut for walk for whatever you want and need it to stand for, whether it be a place of solidarity, a place of resistance, a place of rage or a place of sadness. So you can dress accordingly. You can have as fun a time or as respectful a time as you like. And yeah, bring whatever best facilitates that. I love that. I think that makes it a lot more welcoming and inclusive, which is which is what we've been talking about and takes into consideration that perhaps, you know, these types of events can make people feel a bit nervous. Um, and so not having to go and have certain expectations placed on you, um, I think is really important. Thank you so much for joining us again on Tuesday Breakfast. Charlie, it's been great to, to speak to you again about Slut Walk. Thank you so much for having us and hopefully I'll be back next year. That was Charlie from Slut Walk Nam about this year's Slut Walk Rally coming up this Saturday, 25th of November, 12pm outside the State Library. To find out more about this year's rally and the Slut Walk Nam movement, you can follow them on Instagram at Slut Walk Melbourne, on TikTok at Slut Walk Nam, on Facebook at Slut Walk Melbourne, or you can also email them at slutwalkmelbourne at gmail.com. If this conversation has brought up anything difficult for you, remember you can contact 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 131114. We're going to jump into our first track for today. This is by Palestinian uh, pop artist who's living in Toronto. Her name is Nemesis and this song is called Immigrant's Tale. This is a story of a girl One who never saw the world Beyond the walls of Jericho A fairy tale yet to be told Planned to be the first to leave Before her innocence is sold Now those days are out of reach Her hands were forced to let them go Oh 
Immigrant's Tale by Nemesis. This week, we share with you the second installment of a conversation I had with Yasmin Abdelmajid, who is a Sudanese-born author, broadcaster, and award-winning social advocate. She runs the website eyesonsudan.net, amplifying the voices of resistant movements on the ground in Sudan, and has published five books, including children's nonfiction book, Stand Up and Speak Out Against Racism, and essay collection, Talking About a Revolution. In the first part of our interview, Yasmin provided us with context to the latest conflict and discussed the importance of imagining a radical future for Sudan and its people. In this final part of this interview, we speak about the violence committed against the Masalit people of Darfur, as well as the role of neo-imperialism in this war. I wanted to touch briefly on any particular groups or communities that are rendered especially vulnerable in the latest outbreak of this war. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, some of the worst violence that we're seeing is in Darfur, in Western Darfur, but kind of spreading across the region. And unfortunately, it has, you know, it may not have begun this way, but it has definitely turned out this way, that it is a a ethnic and tribal, um, it, it runs along ethnic and tribal divisions and it runs along, um, so the, one of the, the main groups that are being targeted at the moment are the Masalit, who are a non-quote-unquote non-Arab group, and the RSF and Himeti would be considered an Arab kind of group. And so there is this real sense of, you know, the Masalit being targeted. And I mean, I'm really I'm loath to kind of give reasons and explanations because I think it's it's never as it never follows quite the story like the story is retrofitted to the actual violence as opposed to the violence kind of being drawn from from the story if that kind of makes sense but definitely and within the Masalit you know women and children especially being targeted there's like quite a lot of gender based violence the kinds of stories that we're hearing are really quite tragic and do bring to mind all of the stories that we had. I mean, ginger weed, the, the the term itself means devils on horseback, right? And where the group came from was essentially Omar al-Bashir was trying to quell resistance movements in the West from way back, right? In the uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so the ginger weeds were, it, it was a sense of let's fund one of the groups in order to inflame or to deal with, quote unquote, you know, this resistance movement. And then that turned into full scale genocide. And that's what happened, you know, 20 years ago. And we are seeing the same thing happen again, because I don't know, I I think, sorry, I'm I'm not being very eloquent, but I, I think it just breaks my heart because there is, there is actually no real reason for this violence, right? There is no, that we can, we can sort of put, explanations around it but ultimately it is about power ultimately it is about using whatever divisions you can the age or kind of divide and conquer giving resources to one group over the other giving them the freedom to be able to do what they want and off and also then completely abandoning them because there there is 
nowhere like a lot of a lot of folks have gone over to chad chad is already dealing with a lot of its own challenges you know it is not necessarily a society with a you know, healthy welfare state necessarily. So it's really dealing with a lot of people. And then we've also seen like things like the harvest season is long gone now. And so we're looking at famine and so on. And so I think, yeah, I often at the moment, I'm encouraging people to to look to Darfur, to look to, you know, if you can, if you're interested in donating, like donating to organizations that are on the border with Chad and so on, just because I think that like, the humanitarian need is so vast. There is so little support network at the moment and so on. And we are just really hearing horrific stories. And and frankly, we're probably not hearing even a fraction of everything that's going on, right? It's a very vast area. We are hearing stories from people that are coming over. But also, you know, personally, I speak Arabic. I don't speak Mosalit, right? Like I don't speak the that local language. So you're also, and, and Arabic is, um, it's kind of described as kind of as like the language of business. So the men will often talk speak in Arabic, but like the people of Four or the Masalit or whatever, the women might not speak Arabic. They might speak they might speak the local language. And so even the stories that we hear aren't always necessarily um, going to to tell the full story. But definitely, what's happening in Darfur, and also, I think you know, in the east of Sudan as well, there is massive poverty. Like in the west in Darfur and so on, you at least have resources. You at least, you know, there is wealth coming from somewhere, even if, you know, it's concentrated in the hands of a very small few. But in the East, it's very arid. There's a different kind of level of poverty. And so, you know, when there is so much focus on what's happening in Khartoum, I think we kind of, we can risk losing sight of what else is happening around the country. Um, and that and that's that's challenging. I mean, the the one maybe 50 years ahead silver lining is maybe there's a future where when we when Sudan is rebuilt the resources are spread more evenly across the country because at the moment since like British colonization or even maybe earlier like the putting all the resources in Khartoum was kind of what happened and the rest of the country was frankly neglected right despite the resources the gold the oil the this 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 coming from all over the agriculture coming from all over the country the money and resources and power was concentrated in the center in Khartoum so maybe we will see you know things kind of be dispersed a bit more perhaps I mean that is that is maybe a future that's possible as well inshallah I was going to say, you know, so many of these conflicts that we see in the world are embedded in this colonial history, the way that continents and lands are carved up in very particular ways. Um, so is there a way in which neo-imperialistic forces are coming into play in this current outbreak of war as well? Oh, definitely. Often I say that, like, if it hadn't been for foreign intervention, in lots of different ways, we wouldn't be where we are today, right? Whether it is things like the EU funding the militia, whether it is Saudi paying the RSF for armed forces to fight in Yemen on behalf of Saudi, whether it is, you know, um, Umar al-Bashir or like, you know, the, the Sudanese armed forces getting support from different, the UAE and Saudi, they tend to hedge their bets. They're looking at, okay, because ultimately they want stability. They want access to the resources, so on and so forth. Like the level of interest and in foreign intervention in the resources that Sudan has. I mean, even Himeti, the head of the RSF, he effectively controls like massive gold mines. And, you know, his family has, 
direct wealth from from these mines to the point where at some point and people may want to fact check this but i'm this is something that i this is my understanding of it he personally gave the the bank of khartoum like some enormous sum of money a billion dollars or something like that to keep it afloat so he himself using his personal wealth which was supported by you know people in the gulf and so on leaders in the gulf and so on which just bolsters the rss position but also bolsters um his legitimacy and his ability to kind of like operate as an independent actor despite so you've effectively got like two militaries two quote unquote militaries within a state which just it is never going to be like a good solution also you've got egypt i mean the united states has been attempting to flex in the region i think i think generally people who know anything about the region think the united states has has ceded any sort of legitimacy or or any position of authority because they've they've done so terribly but you know they will always try they they will always try i think but i think it's actually sudan is more of a, a reflection of the regional kind of machinations and movements really um i think with what's happening in israel and palestine at the moment i think that's going to complicate things for sudan as well both hemeti and burhan have been you know they've been interested in normalization with israel for example in a way that is about again gaining legitimacy in the publics in the international community you know posturing to washington and so on so like you cannot understand what means done without understanding the kind of regional movements you even with Egypt and like you know CC just across the border and the kind of now relationship between um I'm, the thing that i often say to people is most of the leaders in the region just want stability and control they don't want an example of what democracy can look like just down the road right that's something that they're very against so whatever way that they can kind of support the status quo continuing to exist they will support that because you know they can deal with a military general they know the, the levers to control to control a military general it's money it's arms also the other thing to to think about here is and this is not something that a bunch of reporting has been done on because it's a dangerous thing but you know there there is sudan manufactures weapons as well sudan actually produces arms for lots of different conflicts in the region for the congo so on and so like that again is another interest that many actors in the area have and when you look at across the sahel mali nigeria etc like there are lots of different coups and challenging political situations across the region and i think that instability is concerning to some but also in a, in a way like actors benefit from that instability because they can come in like somebody i was talking to a journalist who was like oh yeah after the revolution it was wild wild west because everyone everyone and anyone came in and they wanted to benefit and there was money and there was this and there was opportunity and there was just grabs 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 those grabs and so that's what you kind of see when you sort of talk about the neo-colonial aspect of it that's what you see is everyone's like oh we can get something here for us you know and again the sudanese people lose out That was Yasmin Abdelmajid, Sudanese-born author, broadcaster and social advocate. Remember to visit eyesonsudan.net for information on the war in Sudan, including resources, reading lists and databases of organisations to support. 
You're listening to 3CR. We're going to play for you another song now. And this one is by Kian, who is a proud Yalanji, Jirbao and Badu Islander artist. This is her latest track and it's called Catch the Night. That was Kian's latest track, Catch the Night. Dr. Katrina Rank founded Fine Lines Dance Company in 2013 and is its artistic director and lead teacher. Fine Lines is an intergenerational company of dancers who are challenging stereotypes, debunking myths and presenting new works. This Saturday, the 25th of November, Fine Lines is presenting their show Tempest, which features 25 company dancers aged 40 to 80 to mark 10 years as Melbourne's only mature dancers collective. Katrina joins us on the line to chat about Tempest. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Katrina. Hello. Uh, Katrina, can we begin with you telling the listeners how Fine Lines began? 
Yeah, sure. Um, it began with me. It began <laughs> because I couldn't fit in any longer um, into mainstream classes anymore. They were just becoming too fast. Uh, and it wasn't my memory, it was my body that just wasn't moving, shifting its weight as quickly as I wanted it to. And I really missed the opportunity to share a dance class with other people. I knew there were ballet classes around, but I didn't want to do ballet classes. I wanted to do contemporary dance classes. And so I created my own. And it started with about three people for about a couple of years, and then it grew to six, and then suddenly it mushroomed to about 18, and now we've got like about... 30 people wanting to come to class every week. And what do you think members of the collective gain from, uh, I guess, being in a group and moving in a group? And what do you think they bring to one another? Such a lovely question. Um, I think for them, what motivates them to come is that they are still growing and learning as dancers and as performers and people who just like to move. So as their bodies change from day to day, we all feel different when we wake up in the morning. Um, and, yeah, we, we discover what we are capable of. And the classes really focus on capability, not what you can't do anymore. And we really, really focus on um, what can you do today. Um, the opposite is just a deficit model, and it's no good for us. So we we focus on ourselves and our bodies and um, being really alive to our potential, but also people are growing in artistry, their balance improves, they've got better control, better coordination, their, their strength and stamina increases, and they also get a chance to collaborate with each other in choreography and um, improvisation. As a, as a group, there's a wonderful group of friends now that, you know, and, and individual friendships within that that support each other. Some of our members um, no longer have other people in their lives, so this collective is actually really important for them too, and we look after each other. Um, you could say, you know, everyone... I could have picked a group and said arbitrarily, only over 55. But there are people who are in their 40s who also can't do those mainstream dance, uh, contemporary dance classes. Uh, and where do they go? So that's why we invent, we invited them into fine lines. And just, well, well, yeah, because when you're 40 as a dancer, you're not considered young anymore. <laughs> you, 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 those things start to become the difficult things that I was talking about earlier. You know, they start to happen at 40 for some people. Some people are amazing at the age of 80 and can do more. Age is a great leveller in that way. Mm, um, I I guess it's teaching people or allowing people a space where you can sort of play with that and do what your body allows you to do and really be in tune with that. And I love that 
you know, there's the benefits of what your body gets, so strength, etc. but then also being in a group with people and in a collective and just having freedom to express yourself also gives people so much. Yeah, and, and also, you know, I, I talk to everybody and, and he, listen to them. So they often tell me what they want and what they don't want, who they want to work with, the ways in which they want to work. So if we're going to do a new piece, who do they want to work with and why? So they have a voice as well. They're empowered to do that. Um, and, and, you know, if I'm doing something in, in class or uh, in the new work that they don't like, they will tell me. They mm. really will. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they're not shy about that. Um, I was hoping that we would be able to have a little chat about uh, this, I guess, concept of a mature dancers group and why you think that there this is the only one in Melbourne and why you think that is okay as a contemporary dance group we're the only one around I was thinking about this because there is there are improvisers who have been dancing together but they they do it in a different way they don't they don't learn sequences I think the reason people are coming to fine lines is because they want to learn choreography as much as anything else and they want to express themselves artistically through a particular idea collectively as well. So when when one's improvising, it's made up on the spot. Mm. Um, it comes from a lifetime of knowledge, but it is different to learning choreography and creating choreography in a particular way. So I think people come to that because they really want to keep growing in that area. I also think that we have a bunch of people, baby boomers particularly, who have had a lifetime of work. Um, They've done the things in general that they want to do and they don't take no for an answer. If somebody says you can't do a dance class or you can't be in a piece, then they go, well, sod that. I will. I can do that. There's nothing stopping me. I feel good enough to do that or I want to challenge myself a bit. So they do, you know, and it's fantastic that way. And um, I also think that there aren't that many places where we see older people dancing. We don't, it's not visible unless it's in a YouTube clip. And it's generally one of those sort of um, derogatory, oh, look at the darling old person dancing. Isn't that lovely? Nobody wants to be patronised like that. They Mm. actually want to grow and be serious and we have a lot of women too in the group so we also have people who danced when they were younger and they were dancing they want to dance now but they they had a career or they had children and now they're coming back to it and they want to be led into that carefully and gently and with encouragement Mm. 
tapping into, I guess, their inner child, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about how, as adults, we don't have as many opportunities to play and how we really want to incorporate that back into our lives. And so I can imagine tapping back into something that you loved as a child would be really, you know, freeing and getting to play with that side of yourself. Uh this Saturday, the 25th of November, Fine Lines is presenting Tempest. Uh, it's on a dance house in North Carlton at 3pm and 7pm. Can you tell the listeners uh, what what they could expect from Tempest? Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, well, actually, you'll see a fair bit of playfulness. That's one of the <laughs> things that you'll see. And, and you're so right about that. You're so right about the, the needing to play and experiment and... Have fun. It is at the root of everything. Um, the first work is by Kim King, and it's called Moments in Time. The whole show is called Tempest because we thought time being a 10th anniversary was appropriate. And so Kim has worked with everybody individually and developed some solos and trios and quartets and, and whole ensemble pieces and put together this charming piece. Uh, that goes for about 25 minutes. And then Angelina Nicole has created with the dancers a piece called The Mark Fall. Beautiful lyrical work, very short. Um, then Shannon Parsons has acted as a director, not a choreographer, in Only Falling Cats Land on Their Feet. And that's a, that's a completely improvised piece through choreographic scoring. And it ends up with, a, there's an interval, and then it ends up with a satirical piece called Artifact by myself and Angelina and Nicole, where we start backwards with a film trailer and reviews of a work that doesn't exist. And then we create the work based on the fictional reviews and the um, the trailer that we created. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's a bit of a comment on what happened during COVID, which was a lot of the very, very big dance companies all put their money into trailers to keep people remembering that they were still around and to keep connected to their audiences. So, you know, once COVID's over, come and see the ballet, come and see this, come, you know. And so big trailers became a really big thing. And it worried me because everyone's pouring their money into these high-production trailers and we, you know, you get used to a thing and we expect to see really high quality trailers everywhere. But if you're a small company with no funding, then that high quality trailer is going to suck up all your money. So that's what that last piece is about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I can definitely see what you're saying there. Uh, <laughs> Katrina, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. Oh, thank you for your time. No worries. Have a lovely day. That was Katrina Rank, the founder and artistic director of Fine Lines Dance Company. Fine Lines is an intergenerational dance company, the uh, one of its only kind in Melbourne. Their show Tempest is on this Saturday, the 25th of November at 3pm and 7pm at Dance House in Carlton. Tickets are available through the Dance House website dancehouse.com.au we'll be right back with our next chat after this message have you heard about 3cr's national programs coming at you on community radio stations around australia produced in the studios of 3cr melbourne 
will well be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. This week at 3CR, we're celebrating 100 years of radio. To commemorate this, we are joined now by Deb Welch, community radio stalwart who started her radio journey here at 3CR in the 1980s. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Deb. Uh, hello, Kaneki. <laughs> Lovely to have you on this morning. Um, can you start by just talking a little bit about what 3CR was like way back in the 80s? Uh, well, it was really thriving. It was a very dynamic place. It was about 10 years old when I first walked in the door. And I suppose that means radio was about 60 years. But in Australia, community radio started in 1972, or was formally licensed in 1972, and um, 3CR was just a couple of years later on one of the first stations. And by 10 years, it was in the current building in Smith Street, and it was uh, just an incredibly dynamic place. It's the, how excited I felt after the first training session I went to at 3CR. I still don't know if I've matched it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I can imagine. I mean, it's still it's still a bit like that, but I, I feel like in the 1980s, it would have been a whole different vibe. Um, are there any particular highlights that come to mind for you in your time here? Well, the reason that um, I, I started as a volunteer and uh, sometime in, um, I got a job as the first women's coordinator at 3CR. And that job came about because there'd been a survey in the community broadcasting sector more broadly that had identified that, you know, more than two-thirds of all the people on air were men and more than two-thirds of all the people doing all the sport work behind the scenes were women. And uh, even in the most progressive part of uh, Australian media at that point, we still had a really 
sort of fairly um, typical sort of gender slant going on. So 3CR was the proactive station that thought, well, we must do something about it in our own environment and um, funded a women's coordinator role, which I got after being a volunteer for a couple of years. And that was really, um, you know, sort of what was the driving thing in my time there, uh, just to uh, find as many different ways to invite and include women into doing every aspect of broadcasting. And it's sort of still hard to sort of picture what it was like in those days. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't seem a long time ago to me, but it is. Um, the sort of stereotypes and expectations about what women could and couldn't do. For example, there was a really big thing at that time where people would say people don't like to listen to women on the radio because their voices are too high. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of ludicrous, but, but um, you know, you, you kind of had to counter that sense that the normal voice that you heard coming over the airways was a male voice and it carried mm. sort of authority and power. And, and um, women themselves had to learn to sort of take the space, which was, you know, the other half of the challenge. But we did fantastic things. Uh, we, you know, we ran 24-hour women's, International Women's Day broadcasts every year, which involved, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of women in the station. And I always laugh now because I think the ABC started doing that about three or four years ago. It's sort of now become a big thing in their radio fixture. Mm. And, it, you know, it was 40-plus years ago that we were doing that at 3CR. Yeah, 3CR has been at, you know, the forefront of a few things when it comes to radio. Um and that's so interesting you say that because even now, for example, our show, even though it's a breakfast show, we only platform women and gender diverse people. And so even now in 2023, it's it's so important to do that. You know, I feel like even now, um, especially in mainstream radio, there's primarily cis male voices that you hear. Yeah. And I think it's still considered a little bit of the norm um, all these years later. So it's really nice to hear that, you know, the foundations were kind of put into place way back when. Um, you produced 3CR's Women on the Line from 1986 to 1988. And it's amazing to think that, you know, that show is still going strong all these years later. Um, do you have any reflections on, on that show? Yes, well, that was the other half of the job to make. It was to make a, a national women's current affairs show. And because that hadn't happened before, and I'm talking in all media, um, there'd been women's shows, but, you know, they were generally uh, positioning women in the domestic realm, not in current affairs. Uh, it was it was really an interesting job to see what would that look like and what would that be like. And there, there, there was a... You know, at the time, there was, a, and as still is, a really strong feminist movement that was in and around um, 3CR was sort of very central in. But uh, I think the thing that I tried to do a little bit differently at that point was rather than uh, petition off women's issues or certain things as women's issues, uh, was to sort of say women are interested in everything and every issue is a woman's issue. And again, that doesn't sound revolutionary, but <laughs> um, at the time it was it was very much the tendency to sort of talk about important things and then over here talk about women's things. 
separately, differently. So I really like to bring in, you know, discussions about the economy and how that functioned or um, uh, industry or infrastructure and so forth. Uh, the other really big thing I think that happened in that time was the nurses' strike of 19... I think it was 1986, 1987. That was a very long, protracted... Uh, strike that Victorian nurses held back in, in the day that was a sort of transformational moment for them really into 